0: This is the London FinTech Podcast, brought to you by your host, Mike Ballerman, bridging the worlds of suits and t-shirts, of finance and technology, bringing you insights, stories and inspiration from the golden age of opportunity and innovation happening in London right now.
1: Hi, this is Mike Ballerman, and this is the London FinTech Podcast, episode 237, brought to you in association with smart the listedboard.com and I'm delighted to be joined today by Tosin Enyo-Lorunda, CEO of Moneypoint that's spelt moNIE point for any of you googling it immediately Africa's largest fintech by transaction volume brackets 170 billion dollars per annum in case any of you are taking notes who also happened to have been recently ranked the second fastest growing company in Africa by the financial times. So Tosin and MoneyPoint have clearly done something well. They provide banking platforms to customers across the continent and we'll hear more about them in detail in the dessert course. However, for now, what we will focus on is the challenges of growing a company in the emerging markets from the initial stages where you find you've got something useful, you've got a bit of product market fit, but you're trying to get yourself to become a large institution in any market anywhere in the world. That stage is a challenging one. In particular, avoiding operational problems. We've come across this in many ways before, and it's a sign of the maturing of the fintech scene. Back in the day, if you got your aeroplane off the ground, as it were, and it hadn't hit the trees at the end of the runway, that would be a pretty impressive fintech. Now you need to fly halfway around the world, and buy a few more jets, and make an airline, as it were. So, there are not that many continents, and the southern one is very icy as far as I know, and not much fintech at all in Antarctica, and thus there are not many fintechs who have successfully scaled to become the biggest on a continent. So Tosin's journey should be one of the most unique journeys out there in terms of explaining to us all, in whatever businesses we happen to be, how we can scale any business successfully. Plenty to talk about, so let's get on with the show. Good afternoon, Tosin. Thank you for joining me on the show today. Hi,
2: Mike. Thank you for having me.
1: And so, in terms of kicking things off, we were talking about what to talk about as an introductory topic, which was nothing to do with fintech. And you said video games, and I said, yes, I remember Space Invaders, but I think they may have uh, improved a little bit since then. And uh, as, I, as I know, at various stages in the summer, when I've been a bit bored and have had my foot up due to my podcasting injury, I've tried downloading various games from Google Play, most of which were a bit crappy, actually. So, anyway, what's your interest in in video games and and which one should I I be downloading? And uh, how do you manage to stop playing them in order to actually go and do the day job? (laughs)
2: Uh, Thanks, Mike. Um, I actually enjoy playing Mortal Kombat. I think growing up, I, I think when the Mortal Kombat franchise was released, I remember, you know, growing up in Nigeria, running, you know, leaving school sometimes to go play the game in... Uh, game centers I'm kind of running away from school and you know it's one of the moments where you i began to enjoy technology and you know perhaps the need to be able to afford such a console for myself was one of the reasons i decided to start working hard you know so uh and today these days i actually play games a lot um i and you will be surprised that games are sweaty there are certain games that you play that you actually be sweating like you did a workout. And of course, Mortal Kombat is one of them. So I kind of play online. My favorite character is Jax. So for those that don't know Mortal Kombat, Mortal Kombat is a combat game. It's a fighting game where uh, you basically your, your aim is to knock out the most life from your opponent. And you do that by... Throwing punches, throwing kicks, uh, some special moves like fireballs, and uh, the goal is to last your opponent to be have more health than your opponents before the time runs out. And you can actually play online, and I actually do play online. I actually enjoy playing the game. Um, I've met a couple of friends through the game. Uh, I've made a lot of bond in my organization through the game. Um, it's actually quite an interesting one. And those that play video games, uh, it do, our listeners that play video games, will so actually understand what I'm saying about how sweaty and addictive video games can be.
1: Yes, it's an alternative world, isn't it? And, and talking about your skiving off school and the random things that connect one to technology, I remember going to a, a Hawkwind concert. I, was, I did natural sciences my first year at university. I was doing more subjects than I was doing for A-levels. So I thought that things had gone badly wrong. And uh, uh, I was tossing up between doing physics, which involved nine o'clock lectures in the morning, which I thought was an outrageous, outrageous oh, right, breach right. of human rights of a student to have to get up for a lecture at nine o'clock. And I thought about Anglo-Saxon, Norse, and Celtic just for something completely different because I was fed up with the sciences, but I decided that'd be hard work. I was choosing between physics and um, uh, and computer science, and I was, of course, all the rational things had gone through my mind. And I went to a Hawkwind concert, and it was really dark, and they had lots of dry ice mist, and they had lots of little flashing dot red lights, you know, in the, in the mist, and that it looked so cool. Yeah. And literally, it was that moment I thought, oh, I'll do the computer stuff. And it, you know, it's these crazy little things that sort of you, you know your life kind of turns on. Exactly, you know? exactly. exactly. And um, going back to the, the the video games and joking about the Space Invaders, I still remember. The first time I saw Space Invaders, any video game really. I had in the seventies. I had Pong, ping pong. You had these two white lines which go up and go up and down. And going back to sweaty palms, you know, if you're playing against your dad or something like that, you want to win. And <laughs> so at least the palms were sweaty. Exactly. But what I found in my little sort of just trying Google plays out and, and getting some of them was that a lot of the games have a certain learning curve, and some of them you then work out how to do it. Yeah. At which point, and it's, it's a bit like careers actually. We've all had sort of jobs in our career and at first it's yeah. quite tricky, then you can do it, and then tomorrow you can do it, and then the day after you can do it, and, then, and actually it's off the interest. So how does that work in, in Mortal Kombat in terms of the designers of the game keeping somebody like you involved rather than you become a sort of you know Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu master or whatever the equivalent is in Mortal Kombat and you can knock everybody out other than people at your level? How does the learning curve keep progressing? Or chess. Yeah. Chess is another example, you know? You can learn chess in an afternoon. But, you know, the grandmasters study eight hours a day.
2: Yeah, that's right. That's right. I mean, for Mortal combat, there are basic fundamentals on what you need to do. For example, you need to learn movement, how to space, give enough space between you and your opponents. You need to learn timing. It's called frame data. Essentially, it allows you to know what you can do at what time. An example is if you punch an op- opponent now and the opponent blocks your punch, it is actually not yet your time. You, you should not throw another punch because it's the opponent's time to throw the punch. And there are actually some you know basic maths there in terms of how much advantage you have, heat advantage, how much stun you have. Uh, so you need to understand the frame data. You need to understand how to string together buttons to make a combo. A combo are basically complicated moves where often flashy where you could more or less uh kick the opponent up down down and end it with a fireball and there's a sequence in which you have to press the buttons often often in a very fast tightly con- controlled manner because if you press it too slow the moves will not come out uh you need to understand the uh um the advantages of certain opponents uh for certain players over the others so for example some are designed to be zoners. a zoner is a character that doesn't need to come fight you physically but has some form of projectiles that they can throw out to you so essentially you need to understand the mechanics of the game so once you now understand those basics movements frame data uh timing how to bring out bring out combos you now need to start learning the psychology behind it because there's actually a a psychology and kind of like mind games behind playing people. So it's almost as if you need to be able to anticipate what your comp- what your opponent is going to do so that you can block that move as well as now punish your opponent and you now actually now start progressing. So Mortal Kombat also has like an online gaming competition that kind of has seasons. It's called Combat League. It runs for maybe, I think, 30 days. And maybe there's like a two weeks break in between, something like that. And you can actually go online and you begin to progress from different level to the next level, starting from the beginner level all the way to the highest level called Elder God. And the way you progress is by beating people, winning points. And the higher you go, the harder it becomes because there are people who are actually career gamers are pros and that's what they do that's how they earn a living so
1: is it embarrassing to ask where you are in nigeria or the continent of africa or the, the entire world or are you up there with the sort of elder gods of the mortal combat by now
2: i think the highest i have been has been a demigod a demigod is just before a god and they now get to the elder god it's actually a hustle and um, it can actually take your time so I will say that I don't have that much time to, <laughs> to <laughs> <sleep>. <laughs> so yeah. But it's it's actually quite a bit of fun. Uh, yeah.
1: Excellent. Well, this is definitely the first time I've had a demigod on the podcast. I've had lots of really impressive human beings. So uh, uh, maybe next week I'll have Thor or somebody uh, with a hammer. So that's very impressive. So um, just in terms of your career journey, before we dive into this whole, how do you scale up businesses to be solid and reliable? Like. Mortal Kombat or like uh, Money Point, depending on what domain you're in. It's all entrepreneurialism and business after all. How did you go from being a teenager, sort of bunking off school to, to play Mortal Kombat, to uh, not just being a demigod, but also the um, uh, founder of uh, the second fastest growing company in, in Africa, according to the Financial Times?
2: Yeah, thanks, Mike. we um, will see growing up, I think I've always loved building uh, In uh, while running away from school uh, to play Mortal Kombat. I also uh, ran to go to my uncle's workshop who used to be like a an electronic um, repairer, essentially repair TVs and radios. So I realized that I was actually very curious to understand how things work and I began to spend a bit of time with him to understand you know, how electronic items work. And I enjoyed putting electronic components together. You know, I started little by little, making, making bulbs blink regularly using transistors, um, using an old car battery, and you know, began to read electronic books from there. So essentially, I just loved realized that I loved building. And combining that with a bit of restlessness meant that's the only way the way in addition to you know playing video games the next best way i love to spend my time my spare time is in attempting to build something and you know just looking at how how cool it is so i think once i reached my university days i kind of almost realized that for me to actually be happy i would love to build something big and initially i used to think based on the fact that I used to work in an electronic workshop, it was going to be like some form of hardware uh, company, something like, you know, you know, Sony, Samsung. But I think uh, over time, it quickly dawned on me that um, hardware is harder than software. And to actually have a big hardware company, you need more than just the idea and the zeal. You also need supporting industries, supporting infrastructure, which of course growing up in Nigeria didn't really support. And that was also the time that China was fast becoming, you know, the best at every at, at manufacturing generally. So the same love of building, I now turned it into software. Uh, I remember when my mom got me my first desktop computer and I discovered programming in BASIC. Which
1: year was that about?
2: Which year was that? That should have been 1998.
1: So you were, you, you were using Windows, I assume? Or... Of
2: course, I was using Windows 95.
1: Yeah, Windows 95 is much better than Windows 11, which I've got at the moment, but let's not go down that rabbit hole. Okay, so anyway, so you've spent some decades playing around with computers. You quite rightly worked out that hardware is extremely capital intensive. The margins are actually quite low. And I would kind of say that apart from the odd thing like Tesla... Most manufacturing industries are a bit sort of late industrial revolution, really. I mean, I met a chap recently that consults on silicon chip plants, uh, which cost astronomical sums of money. You know, you need 10 billion for a pretty crappy one. And if you're going to be serious, you know, 100 billion. Um, yeah. But very different world. However, software, as we all know, is a different world entirely. So you would thought about doing something uh, software not least of which is that you you can set a business up on your own and then you make can join you tomorrow. And that's actually a business. So, what was it then, just in terms of, we'll talk about Money Point later, uh, what it, was it about the sort of finance scene or the fintech scene uh, that led you to form um, Money Point 2015? What gap in the market did you see that you thought, ah, oh, people in Nigeria can't do X very easily. Actually, I think that's the problem that's worth me solving, which of course turns into the whole Money Point and the whole journey and the initial success and then the period we'll focus on, which is how you go from initial success to being a substantial company.
2: Actually, when we formed Money Point, we didn't know we were going to do this. Uh, So initially in 2015, we formed Team APT. Team APT, APT as in aptitude. And that was formed once I left my then employer, which is InterSwitch. So InterSwitch was is like FIS Global in the UK, essentially a backbone transaction processor. And immediately after school, I decided to join a software company, mostly because I wanted to learn about the state of the industry. And I felt like if you're going to build something, you need to understand how the industry works. So I joined InterSwitch as an engineer and became an engineering manager became a product manager. And after spending almost about five to six years, almost six years, I decided I was time to do what I had in mind. I enjoyed my time in Interswitch, but I was no longer enjoying it at that time. So I reasoned to myself, I probably had a few years to getting married. If that was the best time to do it, if I delayed it, I felt like when once I become heavier in that I now have a family, it will become harder to do. And I reasoned to myself that, I should go out to do something even if it fails I can always go back with even a better CV having been a founder that failed so so I decided to do it and initially we started by building software solutions for banks then up till now most banks are not yet even strong technology wise so we helped them build some of the technology products that they needed for their customers their retail customers their merchants their businesses and uh, we did that between 2015 and about 2019. So it was essentially a contract business. We sold software we had to the banks. They paid us the one-off revenue. We sometimes had a maintenance contract with them. In occasional cases, we deployed and shared revenue with them. And it was an okay business. Uh we probably hired maybe up to 50 people in that time probably maybe got a total of about $2 million worth of contract in that time. But I think over time, it was clear to me that this wasn't going to be a very big business, mostly because serving customer banks, the total addressable market and the total amounts that banks were willing to spend wasn't very high. And at that point, they considered tech providers back office and did not put a lot of premium on them. They paid very little compared to the revenue that they were making. So it was clear that rather than be a farmer, I wanted to, we should own the value chain. Rather than being the back and providing the raw materials, you should go own your products because that's how you can extract the most margin. So that's the basis in which we decided to pivot in 2019 to now offer those products that we're selling to banks directly to consumers and that's also what now started the nice. move from original team App to a name change to become money point so we launched money point as a product initially and the product grew and we realized that the product itself was now bigger than the original company name which used to be called App, and we now renamed TeamApt to money point
1: and we were talking before about surnames and my family has always been quite generous and had three syllables but you're Family's been more generous and you had five syllables. And um, listeners will probably have as much problem trying to spell my name as they they will yours. But in terms of spelling things, why just in passing did you spell it M-O-N-I-E point rather than M-O-N-E-Y point?
2: Because that's how we could get the domain.
1: Ah, right. Yes, that's that's the usual answer. Well, a few weeks ago, we had the insurance company Renewal. And obviously, renewal.com is too expensive. So they, they got rnwl.com and just missed out all the vowels. So, <laughs> exactly. Uh, excellent, excellent. Well, anyway, I've mentioned that to listeners so they can find you uh, that way. So you uh, had this business that generated, uh, I assume, some organic cash flow, as you say. You grew a business. You saw that that was going to be uh, limited in terms of its potentiality. Uh, then you pivoted, but pretty much using the skill set you got already. And we'll hear more in the dessert course about Uh, the products that you're selling to which customers in in which market and your future plans. But if we fast forward a bit now, you've got to the stage where you've done your pivot. You've seen, oh, this is going very well. And oh, this is growing fast. So you're very happy. This is really good. And then, uh, which is one of the stages in a a growing entrepreneur's life. uh, And then you get to the stage, which is that if failure is a bad thing, success can also be quite a challenge, (laughs) which is which is every day you've got 10 times as many customers as yesterday. You think, that's nice, that's nice. Oh, shit. <laughs> By Wednesday, you go, oh, bloody hell, what do I do now? And then you really get into this phase that you suggested that we uh, dive into, which is the, the challenge of scaling a business. And I always think of it as turning it from a, a cottage industry into a business. And actually, I saw something recently about this phrase. I didn't understand where it came from. Um, and one of the examples actually was making buttons. Back in the 18th century and early 19th century, button-making was something that women did at home in their houses. You know, the kids are there, they just make buttons and they sell them one by one. And there was a Dorset village that the programme was about, of which two-thirds of the houses are now missing. And sometime in the late 19th century, somebody invented a button-making machine, which is quite a complicated thing to invent. And literally 15,000 people living in Dorset had to flee to the colonies in Australia or America because they were literally starving. You know, cause it, so that was what a cottage industry was. Things were made at home uh, and then industrialisation came along and turned into factories. So you're going from this kind of cottage industry where you're all doing it yourself to a much larger scale uh, of business all around. So before we dive into the various dimensions of the challenges that other entrepreneurs will face if they uh, meet the same success that you have at some point, it might be worth just giving a little bit of context about emerging markets which is quite a generalization because I don't know what's emerging these days let's say half the world's emerging market or quarter it doesn't really matter but all these places aren't the same but just basically and I know you spent quite a bit of time in London what is the difference between a sort of kind of mature market as it were whatever that means like a I don't know London or America and a, a developing market in terms of this phase of the entrepreneur's Germany in terms of uh, the scaling up and operationalizing and becoming more of a BMW factory than a cottage industry what are the particular factors before we go into the factors of a, of a scaling up per se?
2: Yeah, thanks Mike yeah, there are, there are a couple actually
1: <laughs> you may have noticed them <laughs>
2: <laughs> I've noticed that actually, so uh, I think let me start with, with one category, let me say infrastructure is the first category, so there are some things that you could take for granted in the imagine, sorry, in the developed countries and it's not the same in emerging markets. An example would be deliveries and shipments, right? Like if, for example, in London, you want to get your card delivered, there are the very well-developed, world-class delivery companies operating in a competitive market, from the Royal Means to DPD to Amazon, that a fintech company like us could use to deliver cards to customers. In Nigeria, there are some, but the level of SLA and reach that they will give will not meet our objectives. We, for example, wanted our cards to be delivered under 48, 48 hours and we wanted to have complete coverage of the whole country. And we had to build our own delivery systems from scratch. Wow. We are, we are fortunate that we had some resources all over the countries though, right? That we could use to leverage for this last mile delivery. But, we couldn't just rely on the incumbent delivery systems for the reach and the speed of delivery. That's an example. Another one, for example, is net network, which is also under the category of infrastructure, reliability of the network. So if you're building in the UK, for example, you generally have minimum of 4G everywhere. Some places, 5G, a lot of places are using fiber, Wi-Fi from in their homes. So generally network is fast loading speeds are really good. But here, you need to consider that people are using slower internet, which means you need to be careful around the amount of data that your application will, will require. People need to think about updates, because some people will, people, the data is expensive. So when people are downloading updates, they are really thinking about their data and how much they're going to use up. That's another example. Another example will be, in another category, will be people, right? Um, It's, in imagine, in in developed countries, you have, it's, they often, developed countries are often even magnets for emigrations. So you might have talent problems, but oftentimes it's not because you can't find them. It's also because they're just expensive. And there are certain skill sets that you have that are usually in the markets. You might just have competition with some other country companies. And if you pay top dollar, you find them. In emerging countries, you might not find them. They might not be available. And a skill, for example, is digital customer acquisition, which is the skill set of being able to acquire customers digitally and the discipline of maintaining a customer acquisition cost relative to your lifetime value of the customer. All the mindsets are going to GROP on uh, ATL marketing, digital marketing. It's not a skill set that you will find very readily in emerging markets. And what we have often resulted into is hiring experts to develop some of these skills locally. And that's also because even the people that you have in the emerging market, sometimes because people are really fungible, people, especially the people that have the best skills can work anywhere in the world. So you will have people being poached all the way from the US, all the way from the UK. All the way from Canada, and are giving better opportunities. So, you just need to pay world class rates for you to be able to get such people, and you might not even find them locally. i
1: was going to say that that's one of the the things when you were talking. I was thinking of when um, Gonzalo was on the show recently. Well, actually, he's based in Cambridge, but he was he spends the summer in Portugal. He's Portuguese. And Renewal um, that I would mentioned uh, is a virtual company, so they're spread around. And I was wondering what to what extent you can use the virtual bit, but of course. Forget the word emerging for the moment. If you're in a low cost based country, you might be able to find people in Spain or Poland or London that can do virtually all of these things that you need. All this techie stuff, because tech, one of the benefits is you can do it anywhere and, you know, people can be clever. And if they've got a computer, it doesn't really matter. Once they're working from home, it might as well be working from Poland or anywhere. But the challenge there, of course, is the relative costs in the, yeah. you know, a, a burger costs rather more in London than it does in Lagos. So you might well be able to find somebody who you, know, you can hire in London. You might even be able to find some, you know, quite a few people who know about the Nigerian market and those kind of angles as well. But they'll probably want significantly higher salaries. So there's a challenge of using this virtual model when you're in a, in a low-cost-based country, even if it's emerged. And even if the Wi-Fi works, you've still got this price problem
2: exactly exactly mike and that's what we're realizing now like we're exactly what you have said we're virtual and yes we hire people from spain we have hire people from greece that's another potentially low-cost country we're people from and a lot of we're just realizing a lot more of our highly skilled executives are needing to be recruited outside the country and we now even have a hub in london and like you said we earn locally right the revenue base is local but now you're actually going to need to pay expenses for opexes in a foreign market and what this also now does is kind of re- increases the bar for scaling especially for smaller com- companies because now you need to actually achieve certain skills for you to be able to afford such opexes generally so that's a challenge of for emerging markets generally um, and it's also because emigration as well as the fact that because the markets are not yet as developed, some of those skills that you require are not yet in plentiful supply. Those are the two major reasons.
1: Yes, I mean, my thought on that one is that it's a a very complex topic, the whole emigration and uh, immigration, because the excess immigration that this country has seen compared to its infrastructure means that the cost of living in London is absolutely insane. So one of our overall clan whose works in the art world and they're finding it almost impossible on their salary to get anywhere to live in in London. Um, And uh, I did read something some time ago about... At some point, Nigeria was short of nurses because this darned country over here, which is terrible, just basically extracts resources from West Africa. Only this time it's human resources. Let's Nigeria train up these nurses and said, oh, we need another million, something like that, because we don't train them ourselves. So anyway, there's a lot of complex stuff around that, and it causes challenges at both ends one way and Another. So moving on to some of the areas that um, you found particularly important or maybe challenging at um, money point when you were scaling it up. Maybe you'd just like to go through some of the key ones at a relatively overview uh, level, having discussed some of the challenges in emerging markets, about the challenges you found and, and the sort of difficulties you found and how you've solved them.
2: Yeah. OK, so another one is credentials and compliance. Essentially, how to ensure that you set up the necessary control structures internally. Financially, compliance-wise, and make sure that you can, as you are becoming bigger, you don't get into trouble. And we learned this the hard way. For example, in scaling up our finance team to meet with the growth of the organization, and this came as this came in the in the in the way of backlogs for reconciliation. The organization grew quickly. Transactions grew very quickly. We just simply realized humans, of course, cannot reconcile these transactions we did not have enough people enough people in the finance team who understood all the different moving components of the organization to ensure that as products was doing the work, as technology was doing the work, it's also being done in the proper way financially. And we are, we are we now began to play catch ups. So this is much more, this is not particular to emerging markets. This is more of general scaling, uh, but that's true. But something that can be particular to emerging markets is also compliance, especially the regulator's perspective of what you're doing. So because many of the models that we are doing, oftentimes they are not new. For example, what Point is doing in the UK, there's sum up, there's Tide. In the US, there's Square. But our regulators, for example, need to actually now play catch-up. And we've been lucky, for example, in Nigeria, they initially took a posture of who are these guys, who are these guys, calm down. But now they've taken an open posture of more like, let us understand what you are doing and we can create an enabling environment. But if you are also somebody who is in the forefront on pushing the pace of innovation, you will inevitably step on regulators' toes. And because regulation naturally doesn't work, is almost like a control function that is opposite to innovation. So uh, one is to find a way to work very carefully <laughs> with regulators such that they feel comfortable with, with what you are doing, as well as also make sure that Innovation keeps going on also. That's another thing to to think through. So there's also technology scaling. Of course, you will need to scale your technology outside the countries because uh, we certainly don't have Amazon data centers or Google data centers in the country. So what this means is for FX, it means that you will be exposed to FX uh, risks. Nigeria, for example, has been going through tough times on the volatility of the naira against the US dollar. And this has led to increased technology costs because literally most of our technology costs goes to the cloud infrastructure providers and some of the enterprise software that we use. So this makes it, and also even our point of sales that we purchase, which is the bulk of our expenses. So this makes it hard for you to price your products locally. Expenses move pretty easily because not just because your suppliers are moving the price, but because the exchange the exchange rate is volatile, but it's hard for you to move your local prices at the same rate because it's even illegal to, for you to move local prices to put it uh, in tandem with the exchange rate.
1: Yes, ultimately, I'd like to see Nigeria applying to join BRICS. I was quite surprised that Ethiopia was the first country in Africa to be, uh, after South Africa, to join the the bricks, because uh, I think the bricks have got a different uh, uh, idea about all this kind of stuff and the dollar's a different thing. So, yes, so we've discussed challenges like uh, hiring, as you say, the sort of the, the, the challenges of finance and reconciliations. I mean that also applies to hiring and the depth in the marketplace, which is that uh, I know you can't just do this. But if you've got a finance team and it's 10 people one day and it's 40 people the next, it's much easier to hire 30 people in a, in a, uh, a deeper market. Uh, the compliance is a, a challenge all around the world. I, I like the way you put it, actually. I've never heard it expressed particularly that way, which is that regulation is almost pointing in the opposite direction of uh, innovation. When you were talking about that, I was thinking about how a lot of innovation, going back to button manufacturers or these kind of things that had happened in this country, there was no regulation. There was no regulation in the city until early 1990s uh, which is yeah. why there was a lot of innovation. And now there is a lot of masses of regulation in this country, ma- regulating everything, and innovation has virtually disappeared. And then one of the challenges in particular, and I don't know how this varies between emerging markets and other markets, is the whole question of trust. Finance is, uh, is really about trust. Uh, if I got, download some new app, doesn't matter which country I am in the world, I download an app onto my phone, I send it some money that's a hell of a lot of trust because I might never see that money again or the app might crash or, you know, and I've had problems with Revolut and I've had problems with Monzo here. So this applies in technology around the world. But what is the uh, challenge for you on, on this sort of whole trust point?
2: Yes, yes. Uh, Mark, that's a very um, insightful question actually, because it's extremely relevant, even more relevant in the emerging markets, especially because the digital first models that we pursue require low touch, which means you don't have physical branches and this generally leads to people having really circumspect about using your products and one of the ways we realized that we were able to scale while still being digital is literally by employing a massive sales team on on the ground and that's the way so while we didn't have many branches everywhere that people could see they could still relate to certain people who could give them some of these products and that's how we've been able to bridge some of this trust gap so i think it's a big difference between Uh, Those two entities. People make uh, purchasing decisions a lot more through what people say. It's also relevant, of course, in developed countries. But you also have things like internet reviews as factors of decision making in 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 developed country. Trust pilots is something. Trust reviews are things that people make decisions on. But people make decisions here mostly based on what people say tell them. The fact that if anything goes wrong, there's somebody they can go hold and give tons of punches to resolve it. So that's another big difference that you also mentioned there.
1: Excellent. Well, time's gone by quite quickly and we could turn this into a whole sort of uh, university course, I'm sure, lasting eight weeks about uh, all the challenges of doing these things well that you've had to face. But I mean, just to wrap up one on this section before we talk about money points in more detail, when we were planning the episode, I quite liked your your final one, <laughs> which sadly, going back to the way the world is changing, applies to more dimensions than just um, entrepreneurialism these days. I was I was busy about about to try and book a sort of uh, a one month holiday later in the year, uh, favourites going around Southeast Asia, and I was just getting to the stage of thinking about buying airplane tickets, and then I saw, oh, the usual bullshit about masks coming back or variants coming back or, or, or whatever in America, and the last thing I wanted was to have to go through a whole bunch of uh, processes again about trying to claim back from insurance com- um, companies because they all shut down. Hopefully that's, uh, uh, that won't happen. But that's an example of where uh, if you've been b- bitten by a dog once or twice, as we have on holidays, you see a dog, you're much more nervous than you were before. So as an entrepreneur who's successfully scaling up a business, When you were skiving off school, you were probably not very paranoid other than being caught by the teachers or your mum for skiving off school and playing games. And then as an entrepreneur, you're working hard to make things happen. It's a bit like trying to get a fire going. The fire keeps almost going out and you've got to get up early in the morning, put more sticks on, a few more matches, a bit of rolled newspaper, blow on it to keep it going. But then one day... The fire starts spreading. Oh my God! It's over there. I better put that out. I better put that out. Um, and so, I thought your final point I quite like, which maybe you want to say a little bit about, is that be paranoid. <laughs>
2: yes, yes, be paranoid. It's you know, there's this saying that the paranoids are lives. It's the very nature of the world is it's in constant evolution. You simply just cannot rest on your oars. And I thought I was paranoid. But some occurrence happened in the business this year that made me realize that I wasn't even paranoid enough. And this is despite looking through all competition, all the things that can bring down your business, but I skipped one. And by stroke of luck, that one that I skipped became one of the reasons I've had sleepless nights for the last six months. And it's one of the reasons why we launched our consumer app. So MoneyPoint more essentially started as a business banking offering, offering payment solutions uh, to businesses. But I also knew that there was a risk on the consumer side. And the risk is that somebody can have the business side and have the consumer side and create network effects between the two entities. It's hard to do. And I thought it was going to be hard to do. So I was not paranoid enough. But this year, a black swan happened. The Nigerian Central Bank went through cashless demonetization, which grew money points, but also grew competition that had both sides. So competition, I had consumer and business, and that led to sleepless nights. And it was an emphasis to me that if there's anything that can go wrong, it will go wrong. Murphy's Law. So one of the biggest challenges of being an entrepreneur is how you can maintain your personal happiness at the same time, remain paranoid it's almost paradoxical for you to be paranoid and be happy at the same time maybe mike has wisdom to give to me on how to get that
1: no, no, no i have you can you can hire me and i'll be paranoid for for you actually i, I could do with a, a trip further south the um well i'm just thinking about that from a, for a number of ways i mean the first thing is uh you know trust in Allah but tie up your camel um and that's a fairly sort of simple metaphor because you are in there's only one rope but um In business as a whole, I was thinking about how the chairman at Climewart's, who was always very relaxed, uh, Lord Rockley, he was one of the later chairmen, and why was he relaxed? I mean, Climewart's had been going around 200 years, Barings Merchant Bank had gone bust, which freaked out this sort of aristocracy who still sort of ran the Merchant banks in those days. And he basically hired me, and it's my job to be paranoid. So, you know, if he'd come in, anything to work him up at night, he'd say, oh, Mike, there's this, go and sort it out. And not just that, but I proactively... You know, it's a bit like a defence in the military. I'd make sure there's no incursions from in any sort of neighbouring um, uh, areas. So I think, you know, Money Point can get to, the, get to the stage where you hire someone to be paranoid on your behalf, which is outsource anything, especially if it's sort of uh, <laughs> painful. But we could talk about this endlessly, but I want to hear a little bit about uh, Money Point for the listeners. So before I wrap up the show, I'd like to thank all you listeners out there, particularly my listeners in Nigeria, West Africa as a whole, and my brand partners at the podcast. Smart is transforming pensions and retirement worldwide. Their leading-edge retirement tech platform propelled them to success in the UK. Now they're operating on four continents and working with partners like Zurich and J.P. Morgan. Find out more at www.smart.co. Then listedboard.com, your guide to entrepreneurial governance and how you can start making your board an engine of growth today. Okay, so you mentioned MoneyPoint a little bit, uh, but I think I'm not so completely clear myself, uh, and maybe the listeners aren't either, about what products you sell to businesses, what products you sell to c- consumers. Are you just selling in Nigeria at the moment? Uh, are you selling in, in other countries? So maybe you'd just like to give a little rundown of we sell X, Y, and Z. Uh, and then having done that, um, tell us what you need even more of to be bigger and better tomorrow than you are today.
2: All right, thanks Mike. Uh, Money Points is a digital finance, financial service provider providing banking services, payment services, credit services and business tools services for businesses, mostly focused on small to medium enterprises. And points also provides payment services in form of a digital banking application for consumers. So we have the two sides. On the business side, our main product is a point of sale application, similar to where UK listeners will know Dojo Payments or, or Summer. Uh, but The point of sale also has a digital bank with it, similar to what a Tide will be in the UK. We also have a payment gateway where businesses can accept payments online. And we have most of our revenue coming from those revenue streams. Uh, But we also offer credits for businesses, mostly on the basis of their flows with us. And you could say that the closest business to us around the world would be the like of square block in the. US, which does everything. And we also have the consumer side also, which is similar to cash app in, in the. US also, which allows customers to have a transaction application for them to make payments, for them to bank, bill payments, airtime, then savings also. Today we are present in Nigeria. Now Kenya, though Kenya is not yet officially announced, but we've expanded into Kenya through an acquisition and we are also expanding to more east african countries so the next couple of years for us will be one in which we expand to more countries uh we have the goal to expand into four countries by the end of q2 next year and we want to also begin to continue to grow our revenue we have a couple of hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue today and what we intend to do is to hit a billion dollar revenue milestone and we think we have what it takes. We believe we strongly have what it takes. MoneyPoints is a tech-first organization that uses technology to deliver financial services for businesses and consumers. We are backed by investors. One of our investors is the British International Investments. We also have this uh, the FMO, which is the Dutch D- DFI. We were recently backed by QED, by Ni- Nigel Morris, and more recently, Also backed by uh, Lightrock, also. Yeah, we've raised capital in the past. We employ a couple of thousands of people and almost 10,000 salespeople. Um, So it's a pretty large organization.
1: Well, that's that's a remarkable, uh, impressive achievement. And I think uh, hearing you say that to achieve what you achieved anywhere would be an amazing and very rare. Uh, Achievement, But having heard you explain a little bit more about some of the things I hadn't fully thought through, such as just forgetting the word developed or developing being in a low-cost economy, it's much harder to uh, outsource. So the degree of challenge is that much greater. And I wish you and MoneyPoint every success in the future.
2: Thank you very much, Mike. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. If you are in need of a non-executive or
1: advisory director with deep expertise, experience and contact, in the worlds of both traditional, FS, and FinTech, or unique insight into how to make your board an engine of growth today. Contact me at mike at If you just need one-off advice in these areas, via clarity.fm slash mikeballiman.
0: We could sit in a all day, watching the firelight dance, watching the firelight dance. We we could walk in the mountains before dawn Watching a happy moon ride, Watching a happy moon ride. To come away from the city The tarmac's so dead And the people so sad Come away from the city But with the faces so gray With the pain of and the trees Can you see what I mean? Can you see what I mean? We fade in between the earth and the sky Kiss the city goodbye Wave the city goodbye Wave the city goodbye Wave the city goodbye Watch the firelight dance with me, watch the firelight dance with me Watch the firelight dance with me, watch the firelight dance with me Watch the firelight dance with me, watch the firelight dance with me Watch the firelight dance with me, watch the firelight dance with